Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Begins on page 1604 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. God's word is living and active. He has given it to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house... She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. My professors in seminary would say that each sermon should be able to be summarized with one sentence. If someone wakes you up at 2.30 on Sunday morning and says, what's your sermon about? Which would be strange, but even still, if someone were to say that, what's your sermon about? You should be able to come back with a quick answer, uh, something that you're trying to communicate to the people listening and wanting them to, to be able to bring away from the time that you spend under God's word. It's easier said than done, but it generally helps preachers focus as they're preparing their sermon. Is everything that I'm putting in here leading towards the, the, the one thought that I'm trying to have my people hang on to from this text? This becomes convicting, especially when you realize that the Bible can really be summarized with one sentence. And it's a short sentence. It's the title for the sermon this morning. The Bible can really be summarized with the thought that God saves sinners. Everything else is 
and attempts to expand upon that kind of teaching. But that's really the central message of Scripture, that God saves sinners. You can distill it down just to that simple thought. And so the central idea from this passage is really the same thing. It's exemplified for us in this account between Jesus and the woman. And so my central thought is a little bit longer, but it goes something like this. Forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus, and it results in intense love and devotion to God. Forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus, and it results in intense love and devotion to God. I thought of a bunch of little alliterations that uh, kind of exemplify for this for us or show, show this to us throughout the story. We see here in this story there is an awkward anointing. There is a confronted critic. That confronted critic is also a horrible host. And he is shown to be a horrible host because of this weeping worshiper. So, I don't know if that's helpful to you at all, but a bunch of alliterations. Forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus, and it results in intense love and devotion to God. If we set the scene for this passage, we know that throughout the last few chapters in Luke, there has been this tension brewing between the Pharisees and the experts in the law and Jesus. Jesus has taught about Uh, the nature of his kingdom, the nature of the grace of his kingdom, the Pharisees have rejected it. They rejected what John the Baptist said also. And we talked last week about how they did not have an appetite for the gospel because they had no taste for repentance or grace. So there has been this tension brewing between Jesus and really what are the religious leaders of Israel in that day. Thus, it may be surprising to see this Pharisee invite Jesus over for dinner. But what we will find out is that this Pharisee is using this as another opportunity to do one of two things, to either catch Jesus in the act of doing something that they can use to accuse Jesus, or uh, on the occasion that Jesus were to do something that is a sign, he would want to be able to see it. You know, the Pharisees are always demanding a sign. So this is a case of perhaps keep your friends close and your enemies closer. The Pharisee thinks if he invites Jesus over, maybe Jesus will say or do something that allows him to accuse him. Or perhaps he will finally give the sign for which they have been asking. In parties like this, it would have been customary for the doors to be open and anyone who walks by would be welcome to come in. And hospitality that day would say whoever's hosting this kind of a party would be obligated uh, to entertain most people to some extent. And that's why the woman that becomes central to this story uh, is not kicked out immediately. She is able to stay. It's sort of the way hospitality worked in, in those days, whether we're talking about a huge banquet or a large dinner party at someone's house. This woman is contrasted with the Pharisee. They're set over against one another. And a couple of ways in which they are contrasted is first with their social status. Simon, of course, as we learn his name is later on, Simon is a Pharisee, respected in society. Not only that, but he seems well-to-do in some sense, able to host dinner parties on a whim like this. But this woman is not part of a respected class in society. This idea of, of her being a sinner is not simply something that the reader is made aware of. This is her title in society. 
Verse 37 carries a lot of force that in some sense is hard to bring over into the English, but verse 37 could read something like this. Behold, there was a woman in the city, a sinner. The word there is really a a word of title. It's how she was regarded out in public. People regarded her as a sinner. Many have surmised that perhaps this woman was a prostitute or she lived some life of sexual sin. And Luke doesn't really make it explicit, and so I don't think that we need to pry too deeply into that either. The point is that out in public, she was known by the title sinner. So they're contrasted not only with their social status, but the way that they treat Jesus, right? The extent of their actions towards Jesus. This Pharisee, as the story unfolds, is shown to be doing the minimum that he has to do for Jesus, and even neglects basic duties or responsibilities of a host. But the woman cannot do enough to show her devotion and love to Jesus. And in her doing so, we see that this is a bit of an awkward encounter, isn't it? An awkward anointing. When we read the story, sometimes maybe uh, we, we, we come and say, is, is this just something that, w- that w- gets lost in transmission from culture to culture? Is this something that would have happened from time to time? And the answer is no. This would not have been something that would have made the people at the dinner party comfortable. This woman coming in and planting herself down at the feet of Jesus. And then she begins to weep. She wets Jesus' feet with her tears and she wipes his feet with her hair. She's kissing his feet and anointing his feet with this perfume. This would be uncomfortable for everyone who was gathered there at this party. Inappropriate, socially insensitive, odd, all of these things. These are the kinds of things people would have been feeling as all of this transpired. First, it's important to understand that There's nothing sexual that's going on here. It was considered inappropriate back then, most of the time, for for women to go out with their hair down. And so it would have struck them as odd that this woman comes with her hair down and then she's wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. So that would have been considered odd. And then she's kissing the feet of Jesus. But this word for kiss is not any sort of erotic connotation at all. There's nothing sexual that's going on here. This woman is merely worshiping Jesus. We're not exactly sure why. She's weeping. Why? We don't know. Is she weeping out of anguish and sorrow? Is she weeping tears of joy? Why is she adoring Jesus so much? Whatever the reason is, Simon is not pleased. Simon is not impressed with the way Jesus is handling this, and he is not pleased. Verse 39 shows this. He thinks to himself, this woman is a sinner. If if this Jesus character really were from God, he would know who this woman is. He would be able to sense in some way that she is a sinner, and he should not let this woman touch her. If he's so special, if he's, if he's so certain that he's from God, why does he let this sinful woman touch him? A couple things to comment on regarding that. The first thing is that it, it wasn't a sin 
to be ritually unclean. It was a sin to be ritually unclean and then do certain things uh, regarding the temple or uh, Jewish life back then. You had to go through cleansing, but to become ritually unclean was not inherently sinful. And then secondly, we should say that to have a sinner touch you or to touch a sinner did not make you ritually unclean in any sense. Everyone's sinful. So if, if you were to simply touch someone who is sinful, that would mean that the law disallowed you from touching anyone at any time without becoming ritually unclean. So Simon's thinking is a little bit off here. And this is one of the ways in which we'll be able to show later on what I call the toxic condition of the Pharisee's heart. They're taking the traditions of men and elevating it above the word of God. They're inventing lies about the reality of who God is. Nevertheless, Simon believes that if Jesus were a prophet, he would not allow this to transpire. But Simon is thinking this, isn't he? He doesn't say it out loud. And so ironically, in the very next verse, all of Simon's doubts about Jesus are thereby confirmed because Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. He shows him that not only is he a prophet, but to borrow a phrase regarding John the Baptist, he is greater than a prophet. Jesus knows the thoughts of Simon, the Pharisee. So then we go to to verse 40. Verse 40 has a little bit of a feeling of a parent calling a child into a bedroom, right? I have something I need to talk to you about. Can you come with me into the next room, right? And then... If, you're, if you are the child, there's a pit in your stomach, right? You tense up, what did I do wrong? And verse 40 is a bit startling. You sense that from Simon. Jesus says, I have something to say to you. And it's almost as if Simon jerks up and says, please uh, say it, teacher. Please say what you need to say. And Jesus uses this parable to illumine the meaning of what's going on in this story. It's a parable with immediate, instant application. Jesus mentions that there is a moneylender who lends out to two different people. One debt is ten times larger than the other. Neither can pay the debt off. The moneylender forgives both. Jesus says, which one of these two people whose debts have been forgiven, which one will love the moneylender more? It's interesting. He says, will love. It's a, it's a future verb. And, and I think that that is important to keep in mind as we go through this text, that the, the love is the result of forgiveness. That's, that's going to be something that's important later on. Jesus says, which one will love the, the moneylender more? Simon's response uses an interesting word, It's a verb that means uh, to regard something as presumably true, but without particular certainty. So it it would be like when when someone proves the case that you're making is wrong, but you don't really want to admit it, so you think you can kind of sort of admit that they're right, but in the hesitation that you give in your voice can sort of cast doubt on the whole situation. So it's as if Simon is saying, when Jesus asks him, it's as if Simon is saying, well, I mean, I, don't, I can't really say for sure, but I guess the one that would love the moneylender more, I guess, would be the one whose greater debt was forgiven. This story Jesus uses to expose 
the toxic condition of the heart of the Pharisee. And it has poured forth into the way that he treats Jesus. There's a toxicity to the way that he is viewing himself and Jesus. The toxic condition of the heart seems to be in this. Jesus constantly interacting with the Pharisees. How do you summarize the error of the Pharisees? I think you can, this is one way you can put it. The typical Pharisee, which it does not mean that every single Pharisee is, is always thinking this way and is automatically condemned. We see Pharisees who come around to see the gospel of Jesus, and certainly there would have been those of the class of Pharisees to begin following Jesus. But the Pharisee, the typical Pharisee, has an error that seems to be contained in this. He thinks much too highly of himself and much too lowly of God, and therefore of Jesus, because Jesus is God. You know, I've heard it said at times that uh, the Pharisee loves the law, the tax collectors and the sinners love the gospel. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right because the point, as you, as you work through the gospels and you see what's going on regarding repentance and awareness of sin and gratitude to, to forgiveness and the love of grace is that the tax collectors and the sinners are the ones who have felt the full weight of the law. They are the ones who have seen in it to be, they have begun to glimpse the terrifying holiness and justice of God. The error of the Pharisee is that they have taken the law and they have twisted it. They have elevated their own opinions about it above the simple word of God. But the tax collectors and the sinners, they're the ones who feel like Adam, who runs away from God in the Garden of Eden, who knows he has to hide. The tax collectors and the sinners are the ones who have felt like the Israelites when the terrifying presence of God was on the mountain and they begged Moses to to be an intermediary for them. We can't stand the presence of God. Moses, you take care of all that. They have begun to feel like Manoah in the book of Judges where he says, we have seen God and we shall surely die. But the Pharisee has not felt the full weight of the law. He has turned it into something For which it was not intended. He has found the substance of the law to be in ritual. And Jesus says, I desire, or God has said in the Old Testament, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus said that the Pharisees strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They major on the minors. They make mountains out of molehills. They invent things of their own liking. to, To the Pharisee, attaining to eternal life, Being in perfect fellowship with God, it would be like a pleasant hike up a foothill on a cool day. Nothing hard about it, nothing particularly difficult. Keep up a good pace, you're sure to finish. Pleasant hike up a foothill on a cool day. But to the one who has felt the weight of God's law, to the one who has reckoned with who he is and his holiness and his justice, attaining to eternal life with God would be like unto climbing Mount Everest in a blackout blizzard with no guide and and no rope and no idea where you're supposed to go and essentially no chance. It's impossible. Those are the ones who have begun to feel the weight of God's law. The theologian John Owen, Puritan theologian, 
picked up on a lot of these threads, and he put it like this in connecting it from feeling the weight of God's law to then the freedom of forgiveness. He said this, To have all the clouds and darkness that are raised by sin between us and the throne of God dispelled. To have the fire and storms and tempests that are kindled and stirred up about him by the law removed. To have his glorious face unveiled and his holy heart laid open. And of you given of those infinite treasures and stores of goodness, mercy, love, and kindness, which have been with God from all eternity, to discover these things, these eternal springs of forgiveness, is that which none but Christ can accomplish and bring about. Jesus. We're not told exactly how it happens, the history of this woman's story, but that is what has happened with this woman. She has seen the holiness and the justice of God. And she has seen her sinfulness and the great chasm that lays between those two. But she has grasped that Jesus bridges that gap. That Jesus is the place where the holiness of God and the mercy of God come together. And she is overcome with intense love and devotion because she knows that in him she is forgiven. That is what has happened with this woman's heart. The distance between us and God is from here to the heavens, but God's mercy is as high as the heavens. That's why Jesus says in verse 44, he turns to the woman, but he continues to speak to Simon. It's interesting that we're not told about where where Simon ends up with this story, whether he rejects Jesus or not. But the point is that Simon here is being confronted by grace. And if there's anything that's going to melt a heart of stone, it will be the grace of God, the life-giving gospel of forgiveness. Jesus turns to the woman and says to Simon, verse 44, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. See, Simon's a horrible host. It doesn't give Jesus even water to wash his feet. You did not give me a kiss. Again, customary to greet your guests with a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. So it had been moisturizing oil to combat the dry and arid climate. You did not give me oil to put on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Simon has rejected all of these basic responsibilities of the host. It's because of his high view of himself and his low view of Jesus. I'll invite Jesus in, And I will be the one who determines whether or not we should respect him. If he gives a sign, okay. But I'm going to keep a close eye on this Jesus. Because if he does anything wrong in my house, I will use that to accuse him. Simon is following the lies that he has invented of himself about God. He has allowed it to feed over into the way that he views and treats Jesus This entire dinner party was an attempt to vindicate his false view of reality. This is a problem all throughout the human condition. Inventing ideas about God. I'm going to be forgiven because God can't be that serious about sin. He can't be actually that serious about my sin. God must in some way be like us. He's like us, right? We we let things slide now and then. If all things sort of equal out in the end, then sin really isn't a big deal. 
Humans invent lies about God. A theologian whom I greatly respect recently died within the last six months. He said this, We invent lies about God because for whatever reason, we want to invent reality. And the false reality which we invent, the world we make up by our lying, has one great advantage for us. This is why people invent lies about God, right here. It makes no claims on us. It demands nothing. It doesn't shape us in the way truth shapes us. It faces us with no obligations. It has no hard, resistant surfaces which we can't get through. A lie is a made-up reality. And he says this, it never unsettles us, it never criticizes us, it never resists us, and it never overthrows us. He says, he goes on to say that religion is sin when it makes God into something which we can handle. And that's the toxic condition of the Pharisee's heart, to remain in power, to make God something you can handle. But this woman has been overthrown by grace. The Apostle Paul said, grace, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And when he said that grace has appeared, he doesn't mean it in some strangely metaphysical way. He means it historically. The grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ. Grace has a name, and the name is Jesus. And the one who is overthrown by grace like this woman has been is the one who will love the one through whom she has received forgiveness. She will love the one through whom she has received forgiveness. And that's the point of this last section of the passage. There has been some controversy around this passage because one of the things that Jesus says, what he says in verse 47, it almost makes it seem like If we take it on the surface, it almost makes it seem like Jesus says, this woman is forgiven because of the extent of her love. It's almost as if Jesus says, because she loves so much, that is why she is forgiven. Look at verse 47 with me. I tell you, her sins are forgiven, for she loved much. So we ask, is Jesus saying that love is the precondition to receive forgiveness? As we consider all that's going on in this passage, I think we see fairly clearly that Jesus is making the exact opposite point. The result of forgiveness is the love and the devotion that we have to our Savior. In verse 47, Jesus is saying something like this. It would be like saying this. There is a fire because there is smoke. Jesus is determining something from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, because she loves so much, look at how much this woman loves me. Wetting my feet with her tears, wiping my feet with her hair, anointing them with perfume, kissing them. Because she loves so much, that is how you know that she has been forgiven. The love and the devotion are the result of forgiveness. And look, Jesus confirms it in the very next Sentence, he he says, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus does not say, he who loves little will be forgiven little. What he is saying is, because this person has been forgiven little, you love little. The love, the devotion is the result. What happens between Jesus and this woman is astounding. And it's a lot like a worship service, isn't it? Jesus receives this woman, welcomes her. In forgiveness and grace, he comforts her 
Just as God comforts us as we come together week after week. He greets us with love and grace and assurance. He, uh, he verbalizes his forgiveness for her. Just as God assures us of the pardon and forgiveness of sins. And then he sends her out in peace. Sends her back to her life to live out the freedom of forgiveness which she has received. That's what's going on week after week as we assemble for worship. An exaltation of the truth that God saves sinners. He welcomes us. He assures us. He teaches us. He comforts us. He sends us back out in peace. What's going on as we worship each week is that God, little by little, time after time, week after week, baby steps, he is sealing his mercy upon our hearts. That's what's going on here. God is sealing his mercy upon our hearts so that we might come to know more and more that the gospel of grace is true. No matter what our error is, no matter what lie we invent, no matter if it's like the Pharisee thinking too highly of yourself, too lowly of God, or if it's the heart that cries out, God would never save me because look at how sinful I am and I know that I am accountable for my sins. No matter what your error is, what we do here week by week is sealing the mercy of God upon our hearts so that each of us might be able to know fully and finally that being under grace, that being represented by Jesus Christ is the preeminent reality of the Christian life. That is what the Christian life is all about. It begins and it ends with Jesus Christ, the mercy and the grace of God for us. For us, for you, the grace, the mercy of God for you so that Jesus can say, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. God saves sinners. A simple message, but one that we need the Holy Spirit's help to believe. We need that guidance, the Holy Spirit's guidance today as much as the first time that we understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then, by the power of the Spirit, may we grow in our faith as we grow in the belief that the gospel of grace is true. May our lives be an outpouring like the weeping worshiper of this passage, adoring Jesus today and every day, and expressing that adoration in thankful service to him and in love of each other. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, we are humbled to have heard this message that your mercy is as high as the heavens. Father, may what we have done today have been an exaltation of that truth. May your mercy and your grace reign in this place forever. May we rejoice that God saves sinners, that you send us out in peace, adoring Jesus, being weeping worshipers, loving you, loving your son, resting in the comfort of your spirit, today and every day. In Christ's name, amen. It's enough.